Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, gun violence, and police brutality. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. For fans, the separation of their favorite band can be as gut-wrenching as heartbreak. There's denial, anger, frustration, and maybe, eventually, acceptance. But in the end, fans are left with one simple question. What do we do now? It's an issue some choose to ignore for as long as possible. After One Direction split in 2015, Fans hoped the band was just taking a break, that after a year or so, Harry, Niall, Liam, Zane, and Lewis would reunite even stronger than before. But time ticked on, and it never came to be. The five former members were comfortable doing their own thing, and fans had to learn how to cope with the loss. This isn't a new problem music lovers had to face. Back in 1970, Beatles fans found themselves struggling with the same style of heartbreak when the band split up for good. Suddenly, there was no more Beatles music. No more Beatlemania. But the split wasn't exactly a bad thing. For John Lennon, the breakup was an open door. He was ready to start the next chapter of his life. Except not everyone was on board. One fan in particular had his own ideas about Lennon's life, legacy, and what should be done about it. And he took these theories to the extreme, beyond fandom, beyond obsession, to a place far darker than any fan had ventured before. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes... It's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode in our special series on the Beatles. By the mid-1960s, Beatlemania swept the world. Legions of fans worshipped the band, ultimately leading some to obsessive, dark fixations. Today, we'll look at the aftermath of the Beatles' breakup and John Lennon's life as a solo musician, artist, and father. His continued ambition angered many fans who wished the Beatles were still together. And eventually, it caught the eye of one fan who craved the same kind of fame, no matter what the cost. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of 1970, the Beatles, as their fans once knew them, were kaput. The 1969 London Rooftop Performance was the last concert they ever did. Let It Be was the final album. It was time for everyone to move on. But the split didn't mean the end of their music. As the decade continued on, all four members dipped their toes into solo music careers, each with their own unique sound and style. Paul McCartney released pop songs, George Harrison went for more spiritual, folksy melodies, and Ringo Starr preferred a bluesier sound. As for John Lennon, his post-Beatles career was a bit more experimental. Even before the Beatles officially split, he produced solo albums, often with his wife and conceptual artist Yoko Ono. They created their own group, a part band, part art piece, called the Plastic Ono Band. Ono even received writing credits on Lennon's songs. So yeah, Lennon-McCartney was out, but Lennon-Ono was in. Their tracks didn't always include melodies. The 1969 EP Wedding Album begins with the song John and Yoko, in which, for 23 minutes, the two artists called out each other's names as muffled, indistinguishable sounds rumbled underneath. These earlier projects received mixed responses from fans. One reporter for the Ottawa Journal described this era of Lennon's career as either, quote, silly or peripheral. Others called it groundbreaking, but one thing seemed to be clear. This was not Beatles music. 
Beyond this experimental new style, Lennon pursued something else that set him apart from his Beatles persona, politics. Lennon had always been known as the quote-unquote smart Beatle. He had a reputation for speaking his mind when it came to current events. And now, as a solo artist, he could embrace that identity. Which, let's face it, was a risk he couldn't take as often while in the group. When the 60s came to a close, political messages carried a lot of weight. Tensions surrounding the Vietnam War had reached a boiling point. The anti-war movement staged countless protests, urging for the U.S. to withdraw from the battlefields. But the government wasn't easily swayed. In fact, many of these events turned violent as police were instructed to disrupt the protests by any means necessary. The decade itself started with a now infamous shooting at Kent State, where the police killed four student protesters. As a result, Lenin conducted his own version of activism against the Vietnam War and violence in general. But the protests he and Yoko held were a little different than most. Take their Bed In for Peace movement as an example, where they spoke about world issues to journalists from the comfort of their hotel room at the Amsterdam Hilton. The couple described it as a, quote, uncensored love-in. Around the same time, the duo bought massive billboards in Times Square that declared, war is over if you want it. They signed the message with love from John and Yoko. Of course, there was one glaring difference between this style of activism and the sit-in students conducted throughout the 1960s. Privilege. The students protesting were often met with violence. They were dragged out of the classrooms, were arrested, and beaten with clubs. Meanwhile, Lennon and Ono spoke about world peace from their own private room, complete with housekeeping and five-star room service at a hotel that now boasts an extraordinary rate of about $1,900 a night. So you can probably see why Lenin's politics were met with mixed reactions. But if he was aware of this, he really didn't show it. And when it came to his music, Lenin's political stance was even clearer. Out of the many songs he produced during this time, there's one track that stands out as an example. The 1971 song, Imagine. In the lyrics, Lennon asked listeners to picture a world where world peace was possible, even suggesting that such a utopia could exist if we worked together for it. To some, this vague description of peace might have been another turnoff. Another indication that Lenin just didn't understand how complicated global politics was. Still, the song was a massive hit, skyrocketing to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So clearly, some folks bought into his message. But not everyone took kindly to this new, openly political chapter of John Lennon's life. More specifically, the FBI. 
If you're an avid listener of this show, then it's probably no surprise that anti-war activism would fall on the FBI's radar, and Lenin was no exception. But the Bureau was keeping tabs on the singer because of other unsavory activities as well. In 1968, Lennon had been arrested for drug possession in London, a charge that only cost him a 150-pound fine. The matter had been settled in the UK, but in the United States, where Lennon was now residing, the Nixon administration held on to the charge as a potential excuse, just in case they ever wanted to deport him. It isn't totally clear why the United States government was holding this grudge against the pop star. Maybe the Nixon administration saw him as the walking embodiment of this anti-war, anti-establishment threat they wanted to destroy. It didn't help that throughout the decade, Lennon met with several other radical activists who'd run afoul of the law. The musician briefly befriended Jerry Rubin, a leftist member of the Chicago 7, a group tried for conspiracy after the deadly events of the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Around this time, Lennon and Ono also participated in the John Sinclair Freedom Rally in Detroit. The event centered on releasing activist John Sinclair, who was arrested for selling cannabis to two undercover cops. Hanging out with these outspoken figures probably didn't fare well in the FBI's eyes. And for the first half of the 1970s, Lennon was rarely left alone. Kid O'Toole and Kenneth Womack's book, Fandom and the Beatles, said federal agents followed Lennon's every move, searching for any slip-up that might get him sent back to the UK. But nothing stuck, and in 1976, Lennon gave them another middle finger when he received permanent resident status. This made it virtually impossible for the Nixon administration to ever kick him out. After that, things quieted down for Lennon and Ono. A year prior to Lennon being granted residency, they had a son, Sean. And now, Lennon's life could finally become more domestic. Frankly, he liked it that way. Following Sean's birth, John decided he wanted a break from music entirely. He declared that he was now a quote-unquote house husband. This was another shock for fans, especially those who'd come to see John as a sage leader making sense of current events. Rolling Stone columnist Dave Marsh even wrote an open letter to Lennon, begging him to get back in the studio. But Lennon had some choice words in response. David Marsh had found out through the grapevine John's response was, quote, I don't fucking owe anybody anything. I've done my part. It's everybody else's turn now. Despite his harsh reaction, John seemed to settle in comfortably into the role of house husband. He, Ono, and their son spent their days together in their luxurious apartment at the Dakota in New York City's Upper West Side. There, John would play the piano for Sean, sometimes singing along to old Beatles songs. Staff who worked at the Dakota could even hear John's at-home performances as those familiar tunes echoed down the hall. 
But after nearly five years of domestic life, Lennon and Ono felt a call to return to the studio. At the end of the 70s, the pair worked on a new album titled Double Fantasy. Those years of rest seemed to recharge Lennon's enthusiasm for music. As Ono would later describe, he acted like an exhilarated little boy on the project. She even told journalist David Sheff that Lennon wanted to share his excitement with, quote, the kids, meaning his fans. Double Fantasy debuted in November 1980. Their single, Just Like Starting Over, was predicted to be a number one hit. And Lennon seemed genuinely excited about the future. In a 1980 interview with Playboy, he waxed poetic, telling David Sheff, quote, Life begins at 40, so they promise. Oh, I believe it, too. It's like, wow, what's going to happen next? Well, something big was about to happen, but it was nothing anyone could have predicted. Coming up, Lenin's untimely death and the conspiracy theory of the government's possible role. Hi, listeners. Carter here. Our Beatlemania series has been such a blast to explore, combining some of my favorite genres, true crime, mystery, and music. Another podcast that mixes these topics brilliantly is Disgraceland. Hosted by Jake Brennan, Disgraceland tells infamous tales of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Jake melds music history with true crime and transgressive fiction for a truly entertaining look at rock's most insane stories, shedding new light on the darker side of some of our most beloved artists. If you haven't listened before, there's no better time to dive in. Disgraceland is now celebrating their five-year anniversary with a new season featuring all new artists and stories. Listen to Disgraceland on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1980, John Lennon and Yoko Ono released their first album in five years, Double Fantasy. It was meant to be Lennon's comeback as a musician, a new chapter in his career. And on December 8th of that year, things were looking up. That afternoon, Annie Leibovitz came to photograph Lennon and Ono for an upcoming Rolling Stone issue. She wanted the snapshot to pay homage to the cover of Double Fantasy, which showed the couple kissing, a simple act of love during a jaded time. The resulting photograph showed the pair lying on the floor. A nude John wrapped his limbs around a dressed Yoko, kissing her on the cheek as a smile crept across her face. When Leibovitz showed the pair the photograph, Lennon was delighted. He told the photographer, quote, You've captured our relationship exactly. 
After the photo shoot, he and Ono went downstairs for an interview with RKO Radio. Then they rushed off to the studio to listen to an early recording of their new track, Walking on Thin Ice. But on their way out of the Dakota, Lennon was stopped by a fan. A 25-year-old man in an oversized coat and glasses named Mark David Chapman. An amateur photographer who captured the infamous moment on film would later describe how Chapman silently held out a copy of Double Fantasy for John to sign. Then, as quietly as he arrived, Chapman snuck away. Lennon probably didn't think much of this interaction. To him, this was just another adoring fan. At least, it seemed that way until they returned later that night. It was dark by the time Lennon and Ono made their way back to the Dakota. The street was lit only by the gas lamps of the luxury apartment building. Ono strode out of the car with Lennon a few paces behind her. But in the darkness, Chapman was lurking. The couple likely didn't see him until Lennon heard a polite voice call his name. He turned around, but he didn't even get a chance to respond. Shots rang out into the night. Chapman's four bullets struck Lennon from close range. The pop star collapsed, wounded and bleeding. And strangely, Chapman made no attempts to flee. As pandemonium broke out, Chapman tossed his gun and pulled a book from his coat pocket. Then he started to read. It was a tattered copy of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. The doorman of the Dakota rushed over to Chapman, asking if he understood what he'd just done. Chapman responded calmly with, quote, I just killed John Lennon. Dumbfounded, the doorman left Chapman sitting there and called the police. Even as officers swarmed the street, he made no effort to run, hide, or resist arrest. When he was placed in the squad car, he admitted he'd acted alone, and later said, John Lennon had to die. Meanwhile, Lennon was bleeding profusely from his wounds. Two policemen escorted him to the hospital themselves, but the damage had already been done. Lennon didn't survive the trip. Across the world, fans had to come to grips with the sudden, unexpected death of the beloved musician. In Central Park, over 100,000 people gathered to share a moment of silence in the oncoming days. Another 30,000 people congregated outside St. George's Hall in the Beatles' hometown of Liverpool. To many, Lennon's murder was unimaginable, and it brought a finality that was difficult to accept. How could a pop star and political activist like John Lennon be killed by some stranger at random? Some fans felt there had to be a deeper answer, some meaning behind this tragedy. And the only place it could be found was within the person who'd committed the crime. So now many wondered, who in the world was Mark David Chapman? And why did he do something like this? 
Some suspected Chapman was a crazed, dangerous fan who'd taken his obsession with the Beatles too far. Or maybe he was going by an alias and was actually a famous horror novelist, masquerading as an unknown stranger to keep his identity a secret. We're not going to mention that novelist by name to avoid giving our attorneys a heart attack, but he's still alive and has written over 60 novels, many of which have been turned into popular movies. So we'll let you fill in the blanks. This theory was so absurd that it never really gained any steam. In fact, the only person who pushed it was a fellow author named Steve Lightfoot. He even went as far as to cover the outside of his own van with signs, declaring it was true. This theory was primarily based on one detail, that an earlier photo of the aforementioned horror author looked to Lightfoot a lot like Mark David Chapman. But in my opinion, there's hardly any resemblance between the two. I agree. To be honest, we're not sure what would lead Lightfoot to suggest that. The entire thing is an improbable theory, especially because this author has gone on to achieve a lot more fame and write a lot more novels since. Speaking of novels, there was a lot of speculation about the book Chapman was reading on the night of the murder, The Catcher in the Rye. To some people, the presence of this specific story felt too important to ignore. It's about a young loner named Holden Caulfield. After being expelled from school, he wanders aimlessly throughout New York City, trying to find meaning in a world he sees as phony. In interviews with the police following his arrest, Chapman said he felt an affinity to the character's loneliness and a similar isolation from the world. But to some fans, that wasn't enough to justify why this book was so important to the killer. Perhaps it held some kind of power over Chapman that made him kill Lennon. In his book, John Lennon and the FBI Files, author Phil Strongman speculates how Chapman might have been an operative of the FBI or the CIA and was hired to kill Lennon for being so radically anti-establishment. Strongman wonders if the CIA utilized its long history of mind control experiments and hypnosis on Chapman. And perhaps the catcher in the rye was a key element in his programming. As soon as he read a particular passage, Chapman was triggered to carry out the execution. If you've ever seen or read The Manchurian Candidate, this is probably ringing some bells. Strongman says he found support for this theory in the fact that Chapman had very little money. And yet, he mysteriously was able to travel the world to places like Japan, Vietnam, even Beirut, which Strongman says was the home to one of the most notorious CIA recruitment centers. But the theory struggles to point to any specific passages in the book that might have triggered Chapman as a sleeper agent. And while the FBI may have had motive for wanting Lennon gone, they don't necessarily always work hand in hand with the CIA. We don't find Strongman's theory compelling and haven't found any evidence to suggest this theory is true. 
I think we have to move on to other, less outrageous theories. I agree. But if Mark David Chapman wasn't a sleeper agent or some famous author in disguise, then why, or rather how, could something like this happen to one of the most famous people on the planet? Coming up, the inner workings of Mark David Chapman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. For many Beatles fans, it was difficult to understand the motive behind John Lennon's murder. Even the surviving members of the Beatles struggled to find the right words to say about the tragedy. In the weeks following the assassination, news outlets sought comments from Paul, George, and Ringo, and they echoed the same sentiment. They were in complete and utter shock. The Washington Post described Paul McCartney as, quote, pale and shaken. In his statement, all Paul could say was that he couldn't, quote, take it in at the moment. Inevitably, all three Beatles stepped away from the press in the wake of Lennon's death, perhaps choosing to spend time with their loved ones. So, without guidance from the remaining ex-members of the band, fans turned to the only person who could offer an explanation for the horrible tragedy, Mark David Chapman himself. And the truth about the young killer was, in a way, even stranger than the theories that surrounded him. After his arrest, Mark David Chapman rarely spoke to the press. When he did share his thoughts about the murder, they were often confusing and contradictory. In interviews with his lawyer, Jonathan Marks, Chapman said he admired Lennon his whole life. In fact, the young killer seemed confused at himself for killing one of the Beatles. He told Marks, I think I have some problems. He went on saying he believed, quote, my main problem is all my life I've been too sensitive. I've pent up all my aggression, kept swallowing it and swallowing it. In the lead up to his trial, Chapman spoke to psychologist Lee Salk to assess his mental state. But as Salk searched for answers in Chapman's history, he discovered Lennon was not the first celebrity he'd considered killing. 
Let's turn the calendar back to 1977, three years before Lennon's murder. That year, Chapman took a trip to Hawaii where he contemplated murdering the state's governor, George Arayoshi. When Salk asked Chapman why he wanted to kill this politician, he wasn't totally sure. He told Salk, quote, I don't know. I guess because he was the governor. He was popular. Also on Chapman's potential hit list were former First Lady Jackie Onassis, President Ronald Reagan, and fellow Beatle Paul McCartney. And that's just to name a few. The young man offered vague reasons for why each of these people deserved to die. But in the end, it all boiled down to one thing. Their popularity in the public eye. All of this went against the idea that Mark David Chapman was a crazed Beatles fan who'd taken his obsession to the extreme. Sure, he was a fan of the band, but as Richard Mills explains in his book, The Beatles and Fandom, Chapman didn't kill Lennon because of his love for the Beatles. Mills wrote that instead, quote, Chapman's personality was a mix of paranoia, fixation, obsession, and music fan, which was just one strand in an intricate psychological makeup. Ultimately, Chapman explained he'd picked Lennon because he was convenient and lived in New York City. Lennon was more reachable than someone like McCartney, who lived in England, or Reagan, who had 24-7 security detail. Also, Chapman seemed to have exaggerated ideas about fame, which might have driven him to dark places. Chapman later said, quote, I felt that by killing him, I would become somebody. And instead of that, I became a murderer, and murderers are not somebodies. Chapman's choice to kill Lennon seemed, to his counsel, due to mental illness. As he prepared for trial, his defense team urged him to take an insanity plea. But Chapman refused, and in August of 1981, he was sentenced to 20 years to life for Lennon's assassination. But his sentencing didn't mend the hearts of all Beatles fans. In a way, some devotees are still grieving Lennon's loss today. One of the most popular attractions in Central Park is still the Strawberry Fields, a garden Yoko Ono designed as a memorial to her late husband. This spot is right across the street from the Dakota, where Lennon is memorialized in another, more supernatural way. Yoko said that she has seen Lennon's ghost playing piano in the apartment they once shared. Perhaps even visitors have heard the familiar tune of those old Beatles songs still ringing down the halls. It's been over 40 years since John Lennon was assassinated and over 50 years since the Beatles broke up. But to fans, the passage of time doesn't make a difference. Both the music and the legacy of the band live on. Fans have tried to discover meaning in any song or photo they can find. When it came to Lennon, that search might have been to help explain the unexplainable. To make sense of a tragedy that seemed too horrible to be true. But the reality is, there is no secret reason for why Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. 
Yoko Ono didn't cause the Beatles to break up, and as of this recording, Paul McCartney is still alive and well. These theories may have waned with time, but that hasn't stopped countless other music fans from trying to peek behind an imaginary curtain. A quick YouTube search for subliminal messages in music yields countless montages of popular songs that apparently have their own hidden meanings, ones only eagle-eyed viewers would notice. Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again is on there, along with Poker Face by Lady Gaga. Is there any truth to these theories? Well, that's a story for another day. But one thing's for sure. Fans won't stop looking or hoping that maybe this time they'll find some deep hidden truth lurking beneath the surface. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Georgia Hampton, edited by Mallory Cara and Lori Marinelli, Fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Brian Golub. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.